0: Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and I'm joined on this episode by parliamentary colleague from the NDP, Don Davies. And much of our conversation revolves around working together across party lines. I recently worked closely with Don, as well as my liberal colleague Marcus Pawlowski, to advance a letter calling on our government to eliminate all potential barriers to the timely access of affordable COVID-19 medical products, including vaccines. Noting that while one in four people in high-income countries has received a vaccine to date, That number is less than 1 in 500 in low-income countries. The letter specifically focuses on the waiver of IP rights, which represent a significant potential barrier to global vaccine equity. And on last count, the letter was signed by over 80 MPs, representing every party in the House of Commons. Don and I also share a great concern around drug policy reform, as co-chairs of a nascent cannabis caucus, but also having each introduced legislation to address the opioid crisis and to move our country towards evidence-based, and life-saving drug policies. So, while we are from different parties, there has been, and I hope will continue to be, many areas for us to work together. Don, thanks for joining me.
1: Nate, it's great to be with you.
0: You know, you said just before I started recording, it's great to be doing something across party lines. I feel the same way. And I think our our world is way too partisan. And it was great also, I'm glad you're joining me, but it was especially great to work with you recently on a letter calling for the TRIPS waiver. And this was a conversation that you had begun with Marcus Pawlowski and I think Heather McPherson as well. And I'd involve myself to say, how do, I, how do I help? Let's get this going. And that was a real success in the end because we had conservative voices, block voices, the Green Party, obviously, and then obviously NDP and Liberals.
1: Yeah, it was, and it gives me a chance to thank you, Nathaniel, for your leadership in that too. Because uh, I I think a lot of people that watch Parliament and watch federal politics, primarily because the media, I think, is very crisis and conflict driven, don't appreciate how much consensus and how much agreement and how much behind the scenes, I think, working together actually happens. But it's hard to make that real, you know. I think there's a you know a lot of us are have a lot of conversations about, about our agreement, but it doesn't manifest itself in, in concrete action. But that was one example where it did. And, and I think it happens when you get a bit of a critical mass. You know, it started with Marcus and I, but, but you jumping in added some momentum to it. And, you know, we ended up uh, writing a letter calling on the government to support the request for a waiver of patent rules at the WTO. And it was signed at last, last time I looked at it, it was well over 75 parliamentarians across every party line. Yeah, it was good
0: to see the number of conservatives sign because initially that was the conversation we were having. Our conservatives going to sign us, and there
1: were lots of them. Yeah, and you know, I, I think not to get too esoteric about it, but two things happened. One was the process of doing it. I think was a bit of healthy, non-conventional policy building that we need to do more of. So, for instance, when we were doing the letter, we were all kind of self-censoring a little bit and being aware of avoiding loaded language or stepping into areas that we knew would be would be counterproductive and and so it was a real pan-partisan process of building a final product and that's very different than the way most of the sausage is made right and you know which is you know one tribe goes behind closed doors and they, they come up with their thing and then they put it out and then the other tribes you know beat the heck out of it and and try to find fault with it and out of this clash I guess in theory is supposed to come a a final sculpture but i don't think it works out that way and yeah, yeah I, you've been doing it for a while you've been doing it since 2008 and stars. Yeah.
0: and here's one example we're holding out but do you look back over the time since 2008 and you say here are a number of examples or are they few and far between and are there ways maybe we just have to be more proactive in our approach we got to renew that effort on an ongoing basis
1: yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it um, it doesn't happen often enough. I mean, I can think of other examples. It's funny enough; it seems to happen more in minority parliaments. I I remember working really well with Mark Holland, actually, in the two thousand and eight, two thousand and eleven minority Harper government. We talked frequently. We we worked together on things, and and boy, it, there's a lot lot of room for that in politics. And it's one of the reasons I I don't know your feelings on proportional representation, but but one of the reasons I've always championed it is. Is because I think it does result in in fewer majority governments, and it it requires parties to actually search that common ground that I think would result in better policy I'm a strong
0: proponent of electoral reform, and i I think it was it was Sean Casey and I that voted for the concurrence report in the last parliament to say we support electoral reform. I remember meeting Matthew Kelway when I was a constituent in beaches East York to as a member of Fair vote Canada to say you've got to be vocal about it, and we've got to work towards electoral reform. And I was, I was the liberal meeting, you know, they try to put together coalitions of folks of different backgrounds. And so I was the, the liberal in the room as far as it goes. So I agree with you. I think minority parliaments in particular, they can be really constructive, but then it all depends upon the approach that we take because they they can also become dysfunctional. I worry sometimes that this minority parliament committees in some ways have become a little bit more dysfunctional. I, not all, though. It really comes down to how we conduct ourselves. Like it can be a great opportunity, or it can turn into dysfunction.
1: Hundred percent. Well, it it comes down to attitude. Like I, I speaking of that same Harper government, they didn't govern like they had a minority. He governed like he had a majority, and so it became very. It was sort of sorry to use the gender term, but brinkmanship politics. It was if you remember back then, the Harper government was had this tough on crime agenda, so they put out this really controversial wedge creating. Tough on crime legislation, then put the gun to everybody's head and say vote it down, and you know, go to an election if you don't like it. So that was not at all conducive to building cross-party consensus. You know, I don't think we have enough minority parliaments to develop a culture in our country of that. But you're right; it's it, nothing magic about a minority parliament. Um, I I think even in a majority government, uh, I, I always argue a, a good majority government should always be reaching across the aisles. No political party has a monopoly on good ideas and I think we'll get to this when we talk about PMBs, but you know, if 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 ever the day comes where the NDP is is in government in at a federal level, one thing that I've learned from 12, 13 years of, of opposition is I'll be searching that order paper for great private members' bills because there's a lot of talent, a lot of hard work, a lot of great ideas that are pumped into the system that are just ignored almost by reflex. I think governments just don't look at them, but boy i i think that that's a untapped a huge untapped source of material i know you've done a lot of work on your pmb's nate and should be any smart government would be seizing that and running with it
0: on that point and whether or not they get adopted hopefully they get adopted hopefully they get passed but a very small minority of pmb's see their way through partly because of the arcane procedure that private members' business are subject to, and partly because of the Senate. They are ways, though, of knocking issues into the media, knocking issues into the public consciousness, and then in some cases, having governments adopt the very ideas, potentially in very similar terms or or in related terms to what we want to accomplish. I was lucky to have a PMB that I introduced that is now part of government legislation through C-22. But also, when you look at opposition issues that you and your colleagues have raised from the NDP... Do you see this minority parliament feels like a very long time, but it hasn't been that long? Can you point to certain issues, paid sick days or other issues where you can say or even child care in in the recent budget where you can say we feel like we've made a difference as
1: an opposition party? Yeah, I think those are those are great examples. Yeah, I mean, this is such a unique parliament uh, against the backdrop of a pandemic that I think the normal rules of politics have been. Have been altered or suspended in some way uh so for instance in a normal minority we as a, an ndp i got to tell you I'll, I'll confess we were really excited about this parliament because we had we see an opportunity for a liberal ndp majority in fact the the, the liberals have three workable majorities depending on on what, what they want to do so what an opportunity i think for um, for interesting policy making but the pandemic really took away the power of the smaller parties to actually pull the trigger. And I think the government knew that. But, but we in the NDP, I can tell you early on, we made a very conscious policy decision that we would lo- use our votes to try to improve economic and health supports for Canadians. I'm being a little partisan here, but I don't think the Conservatives, I don't think that was their approach. I think their approach has been to be ideological and critical at all times. And so, you know, we we can point to about 15 or 16 different improvements to some of the policies that the government brought in that we worked together on, including things like paid sick days, um, you know, improving the CERB, ex- extending the CERB, getting supports for small business. That was all part of a collaborative approach. And frankly, using the push and pull of, of votes on confidence measures to extract things. But but there also, you have to use discipline too, because we couldn't push too far. You know, the government will only be pushed so far in a situation and I think that's where the real political skill comes in. So, and you know, I'll tell you on, uh, you know, on PMBs, I go back to Jack Layton's famous phrase that an opposition's job is not just to oppose; it's to propose. And although PMBs are sometimes seen as an exercise in futility and and can be, I do think that it changes the political landscape. I, I as you pointed out, I mean, sometimes we get media on things. Sometimes we bring issues to the to the conscience of the government that that influence it for instance dental care I, I did a bill on dental care last Parliament to it got its way into the throne speech in 2019 so so I, I think it is a way to sort of affect the national landscape you know maybe not as directly as we would like but but it does work
0: I have felt the same way when I think back I had an animal welfare bill that I see obviously not adopted in full in any way but whether it's the prohibition on the shark fin trade which I know Finn Donnelly and I work together on addressing animal fighting and animal abuse. Or when I think of privacy legislation through C-11, that is partly the work of a committee in the last parliament, where I worked closely with Charlie Angus and with Bob Zimmer and Peter Kent. And I'd introduce a bill on that end as well. And then more recently on drug policy, which which I want to get to. It's also interesting, though, when we live through pandemic parliament, I have certainly felt as a a Liberal caucus member, there's been really proactive outreach. and, And it's waned over time, but certainly early on. There was a really proactive attempt to say, we're trying to hear what's going on on the ground. So when I hear improvements to serve, I think I'm glad you were raising it because I felt like we were raising these issues too constantly in our caucus on 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 an almost daily basis where we're having these caucus calls to say, here's what we're hearing on the ground about business supports or about individual supports. And here's what needs to be changed. And I would hope that there was that same kind of proactive outreach to opposition members at the same time to say, we're all in this together. and it does feel like it's waned, but do you feel like there has been that kind of
1: constructive sentiment throughout the pandemic parliament to a, to a certain degree, at least? Yeah, to some degree. I, I think more so on the economic front than on the um, the non-economic policy front. Right. So, you know, I think there was a, a very strong consensus that developed fairly early on among all MPs across all parties at the, at the depth of potential disaster and suffering, the suffering that was happening and the potential for... You know devastating consequences. I think the government's you know massive Keynesian uh, program you know was absolutely essential and you know probably our economy would have faced devastating collapse if we didn't step in with unprecedented support and i, I so i I think everybody realized that I, I think it starts to fall off on. As as you get sort of away from that, because then you get into I guess more matters of opinion or values or policies uh, or ideology. But there definitely has been. It's first time I heard that term, pandemic parliament. I'm going to use it. So. <laughs> well, we are now
0: hopefully out of pandemic parliament sooner than later. Although we'll see what the world looks like in the fall but we won't be out of the opioid crisis just yet. You know, we we are still going to see a significant health crisis as as it relates to our drug policy. And when you talk about PMBs, you have been prolific, and there are a number of PMBs when I was looking through the list. I I quite like the idea of a national school meal program, by the way. Um, My wife is a nutrition professor, and I think that's an excellent idea as far as education and making sure people have uh, the, the right kinds of foods as they go to school. But we share a great interest in drug policy, A colleague of mine, Kevin Lammer, actually thought I was the MP. Up until 2019, he thought I was the MP for a BC riding because he thought animal issues, environmental issues, opioid crisis, you must be from BC. I've been raising these issues as well for a very long time. I feel like there's been significant movement. We aren't yet to a place where I want us to get. And so your bill seems like a really positive step Further and again to say you've come a long way, but here's where you need to get. Walk me through the basic mechanics of what you want to see as it relates to decriminalization and safe supply, and why are you raising this issue?
1: I don't think I have to situate the crisis. I know you know you know it very yeah. well, in your viewers you do too. I mean, but uh, we we do call it the Canada's second pandemic. Over twenty thousand people have died in the last five years. Uh, BC had its worst, the highest number of deaths ever last year. And um, it's something that affects every community. So I think the the proposition, Nate, as you, I know you 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 believe in this as well as I do, that the fundamental question is 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 how you view drug use and addiction, and whether you view it as a health issue and a social justice issue, or whether you view it as one of morality, or one of character, or one of crime. And I became convinced some time ago that that substance use and addiction are squarely health and social justice issues. And even if that's not the case, I think one thing that is empirically demonstrable is that the attempt to criminalize drug use and spend money trying to arrest and punish our way out of this has not worked. So it's not just a question of perspective. I think it's a question of flat-out evidence. i got to admit that when I first entered Parliament, you know, back in 08, that this issue was one that we just didn't want to touch. It was taboo. There are certain issues that are taboo, and nobody wanted to talk about drug use because there was a perception that people were uncomfortable with it. What I've come to believe about this issue and some others, Nate, is that there are some issues that the population is ahead of politicians on, and I am convinced this is one of them. And my theory is the reason for that is because every family is affected. I don't think there's a single family in this country that doesn't have a cousin or an aunt or uncle or a parent or a sister or brother, or maybe themselves or a child who has had a you know problem with alcohol or drugs. And I don't think they view those people fundamentally as criminals or bad people. So the funny thing was is when we started talking about this issue and breaking that taboo, instead of there being a horrible reaction and getting, you know, thrown out of office, frankly, I think what we realized is not only was there not a negative reaction, there was a a, quite a discernible positive reaction. And so my bill um, is an attempt to codify what a comprehensive health approach to drug use would look like. And I know you've drafted uh, a great bill on it as well, I'm I'm interested in hearing sort of your views on it. So What I'll say about mine is when I say comprehensive, the the theory is that criminalizing this behavior and stigmatizing it not only doesn't work, but it makes the situation worse. So how do we remove the crime and the stigma? My bill does really four things. It decriminalizes all drug use, all possession of all drugs. Number two, it provides a regulated uh, source of safe supply without prescribing what that would look like. And, And the rationale behind that, Nate, is we can't just decriminalize the use because people still have to get it. And I'm convinced the fundamental problem is a, a toxic street supply. So if we don't actually deal with that and make sure people can get their the substances they're using from at least a regulated source that is of known titration, known dosage, and they know what they're getting, we're still gonna have the deaths. Third, uh, we would expunge all criminal records. And that's because um, the criminal record is a stigmatizing thing that sticks with people, frankly, the rest of their lives. And finally, it it would put money into prevention, education, and what I think is the fundamental solution, which is universal access to treatment through our public health care system. If we really want people to stop using drugs, which I think we all we all share that opinion, I think we, nobody says drug use is great or healthy. It's not.
0: I enjoy cannabis use, but okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. You're right. I mean, <laughs> frankly, um, recreational use, I, I, I'm not judgmental on that, but I don't think anybody's encouraging it. But the point is, I'm talking about problematic drug use. Yeah, exactly.
0: No, I i, I don't mean to be flippant. We, we, yeah. we want us to, of course... We want to educate people, but also make sure their treatment options as it relates to problematic substance use issues. So, And I agree with everything you just said, but there are certain pockets of this country where people don't understand what the word decriminalization means. It allows conservatives, and they did this to me when I introduced my, my bill initially, you know, drugs on every street corner, whatever the case might be. And in certain ethnic communities, we, we've seen ads even around cannabis legalization. We saw really problematic ads full of misinformation about cannabis legalization to, again, scare people. Well, you mentioned the Harper years, the tough on crime kind of policy It's that same kind of ethos that, that runs through the anti-evidence-based drug policy work from not all conservatives but a lot of conservatives unfortunately in our politics and they use that to make the politics harder across the board including for liberals and including even for the NDP I would say where I mean Jagmeet Singh was really great in his leadership talking about decriminalization and he hasn't really used his platform in quite the same way and then frankly Justin Trudeau when I had a resolution before the Liberal Policy Convention in 2018 immediately shot it down. <laughs> you know, the Liberal membership didn't. We supported it. They passed it, but the the leadership of the party, in the sense of the Prime Minister and then then Health Minister, shot it down pretty quick to say it's not a silver bullet. It's not what we're planning on doing. I like that we worked together on the trips waiver. That was great. This is an issue where I think. Clearly, we need to continue to work together. The private members bill that I had was effectively evidence-based diversion, where it was to say, I'm going to really fetter the discretion of police and prosecutors to make it virtually impossible for any prosecution to proceed and any charge ultimately, therefore, to be laid. And it's not perfect in any way. It's It, it could be, depending upon how we implement it, akin to the Portugal model, because police are still involved in that model and there are still potentially administrative penalties levied in that model. But ideally, we get to a place where it's just deleted entirely, as as you're suggesting in your bill. We get to a place expungements make eminent sense. And the safer supply conversation is one, the government has pilot projects, but we haven't expanded it in a way that we need to in a hurry because of the scale of death. So all that's to say, I wonder what you think about this. If in the next parliament, you know how we have this task force in relation to cannabis legalization. And frankly, the legislation tracked it pretty closely. And cannabis legalization, not perfect. We can talk about that too. We need to fix some of the rules. But overall, Canadians are not worried about cannabis legalization now. Do you think we could use a similar task force? We've now got the police chiefs who care about decrim and want to see decriminalization. We've got public health experts from Bonnie Henry to the chief medical officer here in my home city of Toronto. And we've got the chief justice of Ontario make public comments. We've got prosecutors. We're in a place now, people with lived experience. If we put all of those folks around a the table, they would recommend decrim. They may not call it decrim. I don't care what they call it, but they would recommend effective decriminalization. I'm sh- I'm certain of it, and they would recommend the safer supply. They would recommend your bill. I think. Do you think that would create more space? Like, I that's what I'm I've arrived at. But I'm curious what you think might be the next best step to take to take some of the politics out of it.
1: Well, yeah, this. Well, you've touched on a lot of really important points, Nate. I'm kind of of two minds. To answer your question directly, I think yes. I think, I think anything that advances public discourse that makes it easier for government to get to where they need to get to, I would support and is helpful. On the other hand, what, what the other part of my mind, though, was thinking that I was struck also by, I, I thought Justin Trudeau, one of his paths to winning in 2015 was, I think, a very bold position that he took on legalizing marijuana. That was something that the NDP never could find ourselves our way to say, I mean, we, we were talking about decriminalization since 1973 and always were hedging our bet. And I think what, what Justin Trudeau recognized was he knew that the population was there and he had the boldness and the guts to say, we're going to legalize it. And you know what? Not only did the castle not come crumbling down, he won a majority government so i think that, i think there's an instructive lesson there about boldness in policy and bucking the trend because if you know i bet you the advisors around him and said no don't go there don't go there don't do this you know it's 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 dangerous it's too too out there i don't think so i think that was leadership but the other thing that struck me about that though was every single argument that justin trudeau made about legalizing cannabis applies equally to all other drugs there was no principal difference between getting criminals out of supplying cannabis and getting criminals out of supplying What? You know, mushrooms, you know, LSD. uh, Cocaine.
0: I mean, there are any number of substances that organized crime is profiting from a significant degree. And then you have the whole other argument where people are dying and and they're not dying because they are overdosing, per se, uh, of the substance that they're taking. They are dying because it is laced, as you say, with, with poison. They're ingesting something they didn't intend to ingest in the first place.
1: Well, you've anticipated exactly where I was going. That was my point, which is that the difference though is that people are dying from these other drugs. So I, I would say the uh, my, my, my point was that, you know, his argument was, isn't it better to regulate? Isn't it isn't it, isn't it better to keep cannabis out of the hands of children? Because everybody knew you could buy whatever you want on any high school in the country. At lunchtime, if you're 15, you could buy cannabis. Everybody knows that. So isn't it better to regulate and have a, have a, a sensible model? And I, I think that, that applies with equal force to all other drugs. But your point is, I think is even a stronger moral imperative because people are dying from the criminalization. You know, I've come to believe, I'm sure you you know this guy, Nate, uh, Dr. Gabor Matei. I think he's our generation's Carl Jung. I think he's that important to the world. This is a guy who's spent a lifetime working with addictions. He has mastered it from a clinical point of view, but he's melded it with a compassion. And I tell you, when you hear him speak, of addiction, it'll change your life. And his bottom line is that the root cause of addiction is trauma. And so he always asks, don't ask why someone's using drugs, ask why the pain. He punctures through to this point that the worst policy you could ever design for trying to curtail or stop or prevent someone from using drugs is to develop a system that re-traumatizes them arrest them, drive them underground, make them make women soft to sell their bodies on the street, make people have to bust into cars and garages to get the money, make them have to deal with the unsavory back alley drug dealers, just make the whole thing sordid and undercover and taboo and dirty, and then have this heavy punishment and put these people into the criminal justice system. After 50 years, what's happened? We've spent billions. We've hurt millions and I would challenge anybody to tell me a single person who has stopped using drugs because of that. And some of my campaigns in the past have had people campaign against me saying, you know, it's time to get a seat at the table. You know, to be honest, I think the work you and I are doing by being backbenchers, Nate, is curiously liberating and I think important in the political process because we've had the ability to maybe say things and do things and and move the conversation and political agenda forward in a way that maybe, obviously, as you pointed out, Jagmeet Singh and Justin Trudeau, feel that they can't. And so if what we're doing is pushing them to get to the point where Justin Trudeau was in 2015, where a political leader has the the confidence to say, you know what, this is the right policy. It's, as you pointed out, this is evidence-based.
0: On that point, though, when we think of going forward, and there's obviously the how do we take the politics out of it, And then the other part of it is how do we make sure our parties are seized with the conversation? And so I never expected, by the way, the government to adopt wholesale the bill. And then I look at C22 and they basically copied and pasted. It's not as far as I would like to go in many respects. But if you take the principles seriously, I never expected that they would include those principles verbatim in a government piece of legislation. So I feel like difference made and we need to keep the conversation going and what comes next. And what comes next is really in some ways about platform potentially if we head into an election sometime in the fall or or sometime in twenty twenty two. And when you think platform, do you think you could get the NDP or you and your colleagues could get the NDP to again include this and to say we're gonna make drug policy part of our mandate. So safer supply, decriminalization, whether you call it maybe you just say treating drug use is a health issue because that's a way to talk about it in a way that people understand and, and a way that you can sell the ideas. It was in, in some ways in the platform, I think, for you in, in 2019, but it wasn't as much of a centerpiece potentially. I don't think we're going to run on decriminalization as a liberal party, but I, I hope we could run on treating drug use as a health issue and that we will focus on what comes next via a task force or something along those lines. But this is the conversation I'm turning over in my head is what comes next? C22, great. Safer supply options expanding. How else can we just move this forward faster because of what's at stake?
1: Well, if I do the answer to that, I'd be never. <laughs> 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 I, I was
0: hoping you'd tell me. I think the idea of a task force is helpful. I think that we'll see C22 through, hopefully, and not my language, but this is, I think. Language, even from the department, where they were saying if this became law, it would be virtually impossible to proceed with the prosecution. I think that'll make a significant difference towards de facto decrim. It's not perfect. There's still stigma, so long as the law is on the books. But I think also next steps, I mean, you're out in BC. So we've got Kenny Stewart, a former colleague of yours, who has led efforts via Vancouver City Council. Our federal government said, we're working with you. We will accept your request. And they're working on the details. Details matter if it's going to be a model for BC, because I know BC's now made a similar request. That'll take a bit more time at the province level. And then hopefully, in your neck of the woods, just like you guys led on Insight fundamentally in Vancouver as well, at the time, the thankfully, federal liberal government to provide that exemption. But if we can provide a model in Vancouver that then becomes a model for BC, that then becomes a model potentially for the country, that would be the other way that I think of breaking down some of these barriers.
1: That's true. I mean, on, on the other hand, I mean, I, the idea of a Royal Commission, I think, is is welcome and necessary, and and that might puncture through. But remember, the Ledain Commission recommended decriminalization of cannabis. and It took, took a while. Yeah, 40 years. So I don't know that that's, I mean, it's better than nothing. But my concerns are this, is I don't think we can afford to wait. And it, the policy of incrementalism, when it comes to certain policies that are causing death, and I don't I don't want to sound I don't want to sound melodramatic or corny, but but I I think it changes the equation, Nate. I, I think that you know while we wait and move incrementally, you know in every community in this country we're losing we're losing young people, and and they're avoidable. These are avoidable deaths. And the other thing is that. As much as I support any kind of movement that goes for it, you'll never hear me speaking against a Section 56 exemption of, as you say, Vancouver asked for one. So, to BC hasn't been granted yet. To me, that still doesn't get at the root of the problem. So, what that would do is effectively decriminalize the possession of drugs, but that doesn't answer the question of where they're getting it from. You know, I'm a health critic, so I've I've you know had the privilege of listening to a lot of people with frontline stakeholders about about what's going on. The problem is, it's not necessarily possession; it's it's they are getting their drugs from the street, a toxic street supply. And so if we don't do something about that, I fear nothing's going to change because you you can't just decriminalize the possession but leave the sale. Where's the person going to get their drugs from? And by the way, it is no magic answer. Like putting it this way, if someone, my my idea is, if I could wave my magic wand, is people could go into a pharmacy. It'd be behind the counter. They go up to a a, a pharmacist and they buy whatever drug that they need. And it'd be at a low cost. So it's low barrier, regulated, safe supply that doesn't improve any situation whatsoever, except for one. It means that they're getting clean drugs in known titration. And that's the only thing of the 30 or 40 factors at play here, it just deals with that one. And it makes it more likely that that person is not going to get poisoned by too much fentanyl in something where they don't know is there. The other thing that it does is that there's an ancillary benefit of taking a lot of uh, the crime out of it you know, right now in Vancouver, they say that your average heroin user uh, costs them $200 a day. So where where are they getting $200 a day from? Uh, now, by the way, there's there's a fair number of people who are using drugs who are functioning members of society. So I don't want to, to stereotype. Yeah, there's
0: a lot of recreational use that is not problematic per se. No. And people are dying there too because of, you say, the, the, the poison drug supply. But where people are unable to afford and they are suffering from problematic substance use, that's where some crime is likely to occur. And then there right. are and then there is a real public wrong, right? Because that's the other thing. You, you talk about the morality of drug use. There's no public wrong. Whereas when it turns into if someone is intoxicated in public and acting in a disorderly way, okay, there's some minor public wrong, But where there's theft or or worse violence in a rare case, there are obvious public wrongs. and And so any step you can take, and this is obviously why the cops are on board in part, they would say, what we're doing is completely ineffective and counterproductive.
1: Exactly, and and in fact, I would say it exacerbates. I mean, I live on the east side of Vancouver, Nate. I've been broken into five times in twenty years. In fact, that's ubiquitous. It, it, not a person that lives in the east side hasn't had their car broken into, their garage broken into, their house broken into. And in, you know, that's the definition of insanity: It's just doing the same thing over and over yeah. again. And what, what I really believe is that it'll just take the first leader who says, you know, it's time for an evidence-based rational approach to this. And I believe the population's there. And, you know, again, I don't, th- you asked before about, you know, how high a profile it would have in a platform. Probably not. Probably no no party's going to run on this as a main plank. But I think it's time for the next government or this government just to implement it. Yeah. And that's where I think we're at with it. And I'm not saying that to be politically critical. I just think that this is a, it's a completely rational evidence-based policy that is necessary and essential. And again, I, I believe that there's people in every corner of this country that will applaud a government that has the guts to do it. There are some people that are are still caught in the stigma of it, but I believe it's the minority. That's why I think we need to move a lot faster. Well,
0: I appreciate when you talk about regulation because so much of the conversation and I am guilty of this as well in terms of my focus on decriminalization, which is one key piece of the puzzle. And I'm glad to have focused on it, but it is not the only piece of the puzzle. And when you look at, at the poison drug supply, decriminalization helps address the stigma of people seeking treatment. And and that's important, but it doesn't address the poison drug supply. And we haven't in this country, we, we talked about safe supply, and there, there have been. I, I mean, I do think the Patty Hajdu and the federal government have done a good job of moving forward with pilot projects and, and greater support in that way. But when you look at the scale of the crisis and you look at how we've listened to public health experts in the course of the pandemic and how we haven't listened to them and heeded their advice in quite the same way. And certainly with the same sense of urgency in relation to the opioid crisis, we do need to do much more on regulation and we need to talk about strict regulation, all substances in every other setting, all activities are, are subject to regulation in different ways and Prohibition with really severe criminal enforcement is the exception to the rule, and that's what we apply to drug policy. And so the irrational course of action is prohibition, and the rational course of action is strict regulation, regulation according to respective harm. So I really appreciate when you talk about the pharmacy model. You can talk about any different kind of model here. So cannabis, obviously. A lower potential harm, so subject to different kinds of rules, then obviously MDMA potentially would be subject to, then cocaine would be subject to, then heroin certainly would be subject to. But different potential harms associated with different drugs, they're not all created equal. And certainly, as we have a regular environment, you could have different dosage levels that would then also take some of the risk out of it as well. And that's where a lot of the policy making and conversation should be had. And we haven't really had that debate in a serious way. So I was glad to see the safer supply piece and in your bill, but also hear you talking about a pharmacy model and and a regulatory model.
1: To me, because I go back to that first principle, Nate, which is problematic substance use is a health issue. Anytime you can get that person bumping up with the health system, that is increasing the opportunities for that person to, first of all, to stay healthier, but also to perhaps when, if, and when they're ready, seek help and treatment. I mean, this is the other thing is we have not created the health architecture in this country that actually mirrors the credo that we're treating as a health issue. So for instance, it's well known in addiction that when a person is ready, when they have that moment of clarity or that moment of of commitment to seek help, you have to get them treatment on demand. Like if you wait even till tomorrow, sometimes if you wait till tonight, it's too late. So like we wouldn't do that with a heart attack. If you're having a heart attack, we wouldn't say, okay, Nate, I'll tell you what, a couple months, we'll get you a bed. I mean, we'd have you zipped into the hospital and you'd be on the operating table in three hours if that's what you required. We have to create that same architecture. And that's why this bill also focuses on treatment as a very important component of that because we do not have, it's not part of our universal healthcare system. If you got 20,000 bucks a month, you can get treatment in this country. If you yeah. don't, you probably can't. So it it is a multifactorial process, but, but I think it starts with that idea that it's a health issue. Let's start rolling up our sleeves and changing our policies to, to reflect that.
0: Well, you to keep me- being loud. I'll keep being loud. And we've come a long way. It's just a matter of keeping the pressure up and continuing to educate Canadians because I, I think you're right. At some point, Canadians will increasingly shrug their shoulders and then politicians will be willing to act when they realize there's not a political downside to it. And if anything, that there may well be political upside to following the evidence and saving lives, which one would hope there would be. But it's been a challenge to around the word decriminalization in particular, but drug policy writ large.
1: That was an important point I wanted to make is that when we use the term legalization, and this is where terminology is important. I'm not talking about like when people think legalization, I think of cannabis, they think of it being a retail. Right, exactly. Exactly that's not, I'm not talking about retail heroin. And and you pointed this earlier that politicians who seek to misinform and mislead, namely conservatives on this issue, do a grave disservice. In fact, I say a fatal disservice by that misrepresentation, because nobody's talking about that. You know, something like heroin, these are, are serious drugs with serious consequences that need to be very, very carefully regulated. So I'm not talking about retail access on these. No,
0: you're not talking aspirin. You're talking about a prescription model.
1: Behind the counter. Exactly. Behind the
0: counter. And this is why the, the debate around regulation, I think, is so important because having experts at the table to say these are the potential harms associated with these various substances. Here's how policymakers should consider. Here are the different pathways for potentially doing it. So with cannabis and with alcohol, we obviously have one model. With caffeine, we have a very different model. With Morphine, we have a a very different model, and and we already regulate different drugs according to their respective harms, but it just so happens that there are certain drugs we put in the category of prohibited entirely, and then we start punishing people. And taking that regulatory approach to say strict regulation in some cases and a prescription based model behind the counter potentially in, in some cases, and then in other cases, I mean, I could imagine, for example, as it relates to psychedelics, that we would create a whole system. We should We should create it yesterday for psychedelics, a system of medicinal use in the same way we have a, a medicinal system for cannabis, right? Like I, it, as a starting point, at least, that would be a system that would make a lot of sense. And I worry that we're going to force people to fight that same fight through the courts that we force people to fight on cannabis. You have been easy to work with from my perspective in terms of working across party lines. You are someone who is, you know, you'll you'll take your shots and and you have pointed criticisms, but you also... Are really constructive, I think, at times in working across party lines, and yet you are also the health critic, and you're the health critic in a pandemic. So you get a, appointed health critic when parliament gets going, what end of 2019, early 2020. I don't know when you were formally appointed in your role, and you probably thought, "I'm going to focus on pharmacare, I'm going to focus on the opioid crisis, given that's a concern of yours in your constituency, and any number of issues." Never would have thought this, and then obviously. You have been, in some ways, the most important critic in your caucus, or at least the file that matters the most to Canadians over the last 16 months. How has life been as the health critic, where you're not the minister responsible, but you do have additional responsibilities as compared to other caucus colleagues of yours, given the nature of the pandemic in which we're living through?
1: Well, first of all, your your sort of description of how it came to be is is pretty much bang on, Nate. I mean, back in uh, in October after the 2019 election, I had a meeting with, with Jagmeet and he asked me, you know, did I want to change? Cause I had been health critic since 2015. And I, I specifically said, I want to stay on as health critic. And that was because I saw the opportunity for pharmacare, And uh, I also am interested by the way, in dental care and expanding our public right. health and, and, and the opioid crisis. So you, you, you nailed that. Didn't foresee a pandemic. It's been extremely challenging. And, um, Thank you for your your nice words. I'm not sure that I've struck the right balance. I mean, at times on it, it, it's a difficult thing because I, you know, in our system of government, warts and all, whether we like it or not, part of the opposition's job is to hold the government accountable. So that that remains. On the other hand, when you're in kind of a, uh, you know, in such a, a national crisis moment, where I think there's a special obligation on parliamentarians to kind of put down their swords and work, you know, working for the good of the of the people. That is there as well. There's no there's no rule book in what we do. You know, there's no guidebook you and I can consult, and we're often doing it in real time. So what I've tried to do is try to do the best job I can in doing both of those. You know, try to be critical where I think it's important, but also try to be constructive. So if, I'll give you an example. I've um, I've been critical of the government and by the way previous governments i don't i don't lay this at the feet of the current government but how is it that you know we're in a position as a G7 country where we're not able to to manufacture our own vaccines in this country where we once did. That to me is a, is a valid criticism. The corollary is, is to put forth a positive proposal, which is, you know, we've proposed the creation of a crown corporation so that we have a public drug manufacturer like Connaught Labs at the University of Toronto, your hometown. We've tried to bounce that off. If we're going to critique, then try to come up with a positive proposal. And, you know, that's not always amplified. And I think sometimes we're a little too critical. I think I've been too critical at times. I think Patty Haidu probably would agree with that. You know, I recognize that as well. And uh, the government is struggling with with an issue that is of epic proportions. And, and where the
0: evidence has shifted. I, I just spoke to Kelly Lee, who's an expert at Simon Fraser University on travel and, and border restrictions. And she was reasonable, fair, but also had moments of, of real criticism of... of Border policies over the last 16 months here in Canada, and that we weren't necessarily following the best in class lessons learned that we see around the world. So I think there are fair criticisms that can be made. And then that's to be contrasted as against in the province of Ontario, you see Doug Ford go to town on border issues, but completely unfairly. So there's a way of doing it in a really partisan way to deflect from one known's failings or to turn it into a really politicized issue. And then there's a way of saying, it's great that there's been an evolution. It's great that we've improved the policies over time. Here are one, two, three, four ways we can continue to improve it. And it's really important we do because here's what's at risk. And so I think that that kind of constructive criticism can continue to be helpful. And you know, obviously vaccine procurement was politicized to a large degree in the early days of this year. I think we're getting to a place where where that is increasingly less so and we're in a really positive place in Canada. But we, need, we do need to make sure we learn the lessons and we have that vaccine manufacturing capacity and domestic supply chains here in Canada. So I think that collectively, if we come out of this and there's another area to work on, which is pandemic prevention and preparedness, I think that'd be a really valuable issue to sit down on and say, a one-health approach to reducing pandemics. You look at United Nations Environment Program reports and the intergovernmental platform on science and biodiversity. They're calling for a one-health approach to address the fact that animals and the way we treat animals and the way we're connected to animals and the commercial wildlife trade or the intensive way we, we we farm animals. These are all contributors to pandemic risk. You know, unchecked climate change is a contributor to pandemic risk and deforestation. And then we look at preparedness, vaccine manufacturing. We look at preparedness in relation to what are the policies we have in place in relation to travel and and what are our global efforts to working with partners around the world, including the WHO. How, how are we best prepared for what comes next? And I think that is an area, you know, maybe we need a pandemic, Prevention and Preparedness Act and regular tabled reports in Parliament to make sure that we don't just live in this moment in 2021 and we say, Well, of course, we're always going to be prepared. Look at the investments the federal government's making. And then 10 years, 20 years from now, future policymakers, because I may not be around, you may not be around, wake up and say, Oh, yeah, we we let that lab, that lab was sold off. And oh, we let those that, that PPE expire. And yeah, we should have been more prepared. And so maybe there does need to be sort of some sort of regular reporting mechanism. But there's an area pandemic prevention and preparedness that we should work together on
1: absolutely you know early on i thought that uh you know i think i think uh prime minister trudeau talked about there being a team candidate approach and he talked about kind of um, he almost invoked a wartime imagery but to, to be honest i don't think that that was manifest itself in actually approach so I really believe this, Nate. I think what he should have done early on is he should have struck almost a cross-party committee. I think he should have invited the opposition in. I think that not only would that have been smart politically, but I I think that would have been the manifestation of the political narrative that, you know, this team Canada. And I I think that would have also softened the the blunt of the criticisms. I mean, let's face it, the Conservatives have been, uh, also they've just been all criticism all the time, I'm and inconsistent. I remember at the beginning, the, the Conservatives were giving the Liberals crap for being too slow to close the borders. Now they criticize the government for hotel quarantine rules and, and, and border control measures. Uh, they, think they're too, they, they think we should be open up the economy. I can't really tell what their positions are. So I think if we'd have early on had a Conservative, Liberal, New Democrat, I don't know where the block fits in, I don't know where the Greens fit in, but if we'd have had sort of a, a working committee, that was sort of feeding policy together. I think that would have been a a novel, and it would have been a creative, and I think ultimately a helpful approach. So I think that's a lesson I think for for the future. Let's face it; most politics is a it's a struggle for narrative to control the narrative. And um, the other thing I would say is that heat heat is important in our system. So uh, you know, when the opposition is pushing on areas, and uh, that that can be helpful to a government. I, I don't think I don't think we should shy away from that thrust and parry of the political process sometimes it's helpful like I know early on I remember Patty Haidu and Dr. Teresa Tam you know they were saying that the risk of this COVID was 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 minimal it was minimal it was minimal and it was people in the health committee that were saying well I don't know I think it's more to this and I think we hastened we we sometimes shine a light on areas where the government may not want to shine it, or they may not be aware of it because it's not their narrative. And so out of this big sausage-making factory, cooperation is good, but a clash of ideas and contrasting notions I think is also good too. It has its role as well. The bottom line is our democracy is a its a living, breathing organism, and it shouldn't be static, and we should be constantly looking for ways to improve it, and that transcends all partisan interests. I think that we should, we're proud of our democracy, but it's by no means perfect. And it, it could use a hell of a lot of improvement. And I think we should be looking for those ways. And I don't think we do that enough.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think also emphasizing this principle of charity, where I remember distinctly being taken to task at one point in school, because I was trying to knock down an argument, and I hadn't really built up the argument As fairly as i could have before i was trying to knock it down and i think that principle of charity to say i'm going to in good faith engage in your ideas i don't agree with those ideas necessarily and i'm going to criticize those ideas as seriously as i can but i'm going to in good faith do so i'm not going to try to undermine it in some kind of cheap way which i feel on drug policy the conservatives are are incredibly guilty of you know an example recently i don't know if you saw the military in some way had some sort of done some reconnaissance on the Black Lives Matter protest, right? And room to criticize, one hundred percent. Like, what a ridiculous waste of resources, and what a ridiculous thing for the military to, to be doing. And then the attack, though, goes like too much. It's the attack from Jagmeet Singh was, well, the prime minister shouldn't have had the military spy on Black Lives Matter. It's like obviously that's not what happened. So I think sometimes like there is criticism there, but then we lose the criticism by overstating the case and by becoming so politicized and partisan. And and so I hope that when we potential of this minority parliament, as we as we see it through, and there are opportunities, I think it's like C12, the Net Zero Accountability Act, there's room, you guys are the partner there, you can improve that bill. That's the minority parliament opportunity right there in the making. There are other opportunities too, I think. And then however the next parliament shakes out, if it's a minority parliament or not, that we continue to seize these ways of constructive good faith criticism, tearing us down where we deserve it and and criticizing where we deserve it, but making sure that it is towards an end that there's a there's an idea at the heart of it all and with that principle of charity in mind. And that I hope you and I can identify then particular areas. I think drug policy is obviously maybe pandemic prevention and preparedness would be another, but you know, I'd be interested in finding a series of different issues that we could then say, regardless of how the next parliament shakes out, we'll keep working on these issues and we'll keep collaborating, we'll keep moving them forward, whether it's private members business or otherwise, make the most of opportunities to work together and get things done. Because I I do think, at least in this role, not being a minister, not being formally in government, I do think the opportunity to work across party lines is a really important way of elevating ideas and then getting things done.
1: There's so much room for that. Uh, frankly, I think there's a lot of appetite for it. I think if you if you quietly polled most parliamentarians across all party lines. that I think so, too. Yeah, like two ideas just came to my mind. One was, do you remember when for a period of time, question period was five minutes? We were using the committee. I love that. That was great. That That one little st- small structural change altered the tenor of question period because the whole 35 second I'm going to be theatrical for 35 seconds. And try to try to embarrass you. And then you, you know, for 35 seconds, don't answer the question and just get down your narrative. Look, it's not fooling anybody. Like I don't I don't think any party fools anybody doing that. And it it ends up making a mockery of uh, almost an hour of very valuable parliament time every single day. I think we should go back to that five-minute question. I,
0: I agree with that completely.
1: You just gave me an idea as well that you know it's periodically I've thought of this, but it'd be nice to go to the minister and, and say, here's the question I'm gonna ask you in advance. And I strip it of all rhetoric and and the quid pro quo is I get a real answer. So I think we have to find ways to do that. Because let's face it, it's it has become, it has made a mockery of what it's supposed to be. And and on all sides, you're right, your example of Jagmeet's doing that. I mean, my corollary would be, you know, I, I ask straight questions to Patty. How do I never get an answer? And that's yeah. super frustrating to me. So asking rhetorical questions disrespects the process, not answering the question disrespects. So we just yep. all. Disrespectful process. I don't think that serves anybody, and I think there's a lot of room for a lot of that kind of modification to our system. Uh, I think committees have a lot of value in that in that regard. I, I think there's there's opportunities to to reorient committees to do work in a way that can be really productive and and across partisan lines. You know, I don't think we spent a lot of time on this aspect of Parliament, and I think I think we need to yeah i agree i'm going to mention too that i want to really thank you for uh is your your courageous voting across party lines i'm going to share a little bit of inside gossip in my caucus for many years i have i have thought that we must liberate parliamentarians to vote the way their conscience or they believe their constituents want and i don't not only do i not think it harms the process i believe it's what most canadians want i hope so we'll find out every election but (laughs) no they do um you know, I've never had a constituent come up to me and say, geez, I'm really glad that you're towing the party line. Yeah,
0: I know. I hate that. I hate that you voted in the interest of yeah. a constituency and your conscience. I just absolutely hated that.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. Another area where I think the public's way ahead of us. And and so, you know, we're, we're a big country. There's a ton of diversity. The, the ethos and the values are different. And I think that we have a big, beautiful symphony. We come together in this thing and there are different instruments being played. And I think that whenever you know, I've I voted against my party on a number of occasions, not as much as you, um, but I I think you're you're blazing a trail, Nate, when you do that, and it's showing that the government governments don't get destroyed. We'll say, you know what, I have a different point of view on that. I I think we have to relook at the whole confidence system. Like I I think I think our governments should only fall when there's an explicit confidence motion, and if a government doesn't get they don't get the majority of votes even on a money bill the consequence should be go back to the drawing board one of the
0: reasons i got involved in politics and got off the sidelines in many respects was when trudeau and his leadership was talking about empowering parliamentarians and talking about freer votes in parliament and whether or not everyone feels as empowered in the sense that you know there's still the pulls and pushes and the pressures of of being a member of a of a caucus and and a team and frankly it comes back to that way of how we conduct ourselves and I, it really impacted me in a, in a really negative way when we broke the promise on electoral reform. And I had some very choice words that I would have loved to have used, but there was a way of being constructive in that process and a way of just tearing the house down in that process. And I think being constructive and will ultimately be more beneficial for my constituents, for the ideas I care about, and ultimately for the process. So I, it is. it does come back to that. You know rule changes matter i think that five minutes would be a great rule change and then culture matters too and we're ultimately responsible for that culture
1: i just want to say yeah, uh, unity doesn't require uniformity oh.
0: now i'm going to steal that line <laughs> <laughs> I probably so pandemic parlance yours but that one's mine
1: okay no <laughs> pleasure thanks for having me on
0: Thanks for listening, and in the continued spirit of collaboration, if you have ideas for advocacy around drug policy, including ideas for our Cannabis Caucus, for addressing the opioid crisis, or for drug policy more broadly, reach out at info at beynate.ca. and do also share any suggestions for future topics or guests for Uncommons. Lastly, and shamelessly, if you're a regular listener or simply stumbled upon this conversation and enjoyed it, please leave a positive review on your platform of choice. Otherwise, until next time.